Welcome to episode three of Adversarial Learning. Joel here. Welcome to episode three. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed my little vaporwave theme and uh, a few housekeeping things. Uh, you can find us online at adversariallearning.com. We have a Twitter for the podcast at adversarial underscore L. And we have set up an email for the podcast, which is adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. So if you have any topics you want us to cover or guests you'd like us to have on the program, or if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, uh, the podcast can always use sponsors, then uh, drop us a note and we'll see what we can do. Uh, but now on to the episode. Rolling. Hey there, welcome to Adversarial Learning. Uh, this is Joel. I'm here as usual with Andrew Musselman and Hi. our get. Hi. Uh, and our guest, uh, Andrew Terrio, who is the chief data officer for the city of Boston. Uh, before that, he used to work at the DNC, but I think I should probably let him introduce himself because I'll probably get most of it wrong. Are you waiting for me to introduce myself? That, that, that's exactly it. Oh, Usually, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Andrew Terrio. As Joel mentioned, I'm the chief data officer for the city of Boston. Before that, I was director of data science at the Democratic National Committee uh, for two years leading up to this past June. And you know, before that, did uh, analytics consulting and a PhD in political science. So thanks for having me on, guys. Looking forward to a, a properly adversarial conversation. <laughs> thanks for joining. Um, and so just uh, to start off with a little bit of logistics, we have two different Andrews on this call. So we probably need uh, nicknames for them. So we don't keep getting confused as to which Andrew we're talking about. So I don't know if you guys have preferred nicknames. You can you just can... call me Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon? All right. Okay. Yeah, no, you can just call, call me Andrew or AKM. AKM. Uh, or Muscleman, whatever. Muscleman. Muscles. Muscles. Okay. M muscles and Damon. <laughs> All right. Great. So, uh, Damon, uh, first question. Uh, you knew it was coming. Uh, why do they call it Beantown? I, I don't know. I guess beans are a thing here, but beans are a thing everywhere. So really, I don't get it. Yeah, uh, so there's a dish, right? There's an actual dish I mean, named Boston, Boston Baked Beans. Yeah, Boston Baked Beans are a thing. I don't know how they're really that different from other baked beans. Um, More freedom? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but, so I mean, I'm in Mexico right now on vacation, and uh, beans are a thing here too, but yeah, they, don't, yeah. they don't call it Beantown here. I mean, is it bean country? I, I don't. I've never heard that. I've never yeah, heard like Mexico I, refer to that. As, no, as a, I, I mean, that's. Yeah. Does I don't anybody know. actually call it bean town? That's another question. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, here? Not really. Um, like in San Francisco, you can make people really mad by calling it Frisco. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, bean town is like. Uh, yeah. No, it's it's. It's like if you go to Las Vegas and 
and and people i don't know if people mispronounce it they're like you know yeah no i I, I don't know how do you mispronounce las vegas no sorry i was thinking it's it's been a long week Uh, okay no i was thinking uh nevada nevada oh and the pause there was trying to remember which is the right way because it's one of those things where i know one way is the wrong way but i start second guessing myself to remember if i remembered the wrong way or the right way i would probably say nevada 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 i don't know what i I would say i think nevada is right i say nevada yeah i think that's right i also say pecan and i say soda yeah and 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 what about uh, the western state with Portland in it? Oregon. I say not Oregon. a long O. Yeah. Not Oregon. No. Oregon. No. But but is it the Oregon Trail or is it the Oregon Trail? Because I feel trail. like in, in the eighties it was the Oregon Trail. No. Maybe where you grew up. That's not all I remember. No. The eighties. Okay. <laughs> Maybe where you lived. Yeah. Well, I mean, look for us like that was way out west, so. It's as far as you can get. Yeah, pretty much. So, so did, uh, mo- oh, go okay. ahead. I was just going to say, did you did you go to school in Boston? Uh, no, I actually uh, I went to NYU for both undergrad and grad school. Okay. Um, basically, I grew up I, I grew up a little more than a half hour north of here, uh, just a town you have no reason to go to uh, called Haverhill, and um, basically. You know, I was told when I was in high school that uh, by, I guess it was the head of the fine arts department in my high school, basically looked at my college list and said, no, no, you need to go to New York. Like, you can't go to one of these little liberal arts schools. Uh, you need to be toughened up. So, hmm. you know, get to New York. And, and, and I figured out what he meant. And I still don't know if I want to thank him or, like, punch him for it. But, yeah, it, it did the trick. So, so you, you went to a high school that had a fine arts department. Yeah, it was like a little so so the high school in my the high school in my town was was terrible and so I was the scholarship kid at, you know, a little like really idyllic liberal arts uh prep school in Amherst or something? No, no, this was uh this was in Byfield, Massachusetts. A place okay. called Governor Governor Dummer Academy. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Was it like Why? in that Dead Poet well, my- Society? I, I mean it basically was Dead po- Poet Society. Um you know, the Robin Williams character was played by a guy named Paul Wan, who is, you know, just this wonderful sort of portly bearded dude who is, uh, you know, an English teacher and also uh, heads the drama program and is an actor and a director in the local theater scene. And, you know, people would always catch him like smoking weed outside his house. And, you know, awesome dude. He perfor- he, he actually performed a uh, he performed the wedding of a, a friend of mine from high school and, uh, and, and did it in character. And so how does he feel about the career you've chosen? I don't know. I haven't talked to him about it, actually. You captain of industry now or no? Uh, not exactly. Yeah. Not exactly. No, but you're like part of the establishment. You're the man. It's true. <sighs> I am. I am. I'm actually the man in a union shop too. So yeah, like, you're part of the, the machinery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I feel very conflicted about that. But you don't pay dues, right? You're exempt no, or something? No. Oh, you yeah, do? No, I, I'm, I'm management. So oh, yeah. I am, okay. when I say I'm the man in a union shop, I really mean I'm the boss. Yeah. You know, and with all the, uh, the evilness that implies. So are the analytics people on your team uh, in the union too, or how does that break down? Uh, most of them are. Um, we've got a couple of people who 
uh, work from the, they're working actually technically for a, a different department um, doing performance management. And so um, for, for various reasons, there is uh, some subset of, of uh, middle management that's exempt. But for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, most of the people on my team are, uh, you know, civil servants. Part is of. it like an analytics union or is it the sort of thing where it's like auto workers and then also a few analytics people? Uh, I, I believe it's salaried employees of North America or something like that. Mm. Don't quote no. me on the exact name. I wonder if I, I'm, I might even be eligible for that one. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it, it's very broad based as you'd, as you'd expect. So if, so if you have direct deposit, you can join uh, something like that. Yeah. As long as you're not paid hourly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, except, I mean, even I'm paid hourly. Like, it's it's a weird thing, actually. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about working in government is people actually do punch a clock. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, the people who uh, the people who work for me, like, they they leave at five. I have to kick them out at five, basically. Um, do you have to and, tell them when to, when to take lunch and, and smoke breaks and stuff, too? Uh, not exactly, but it's in a contract that they get, you know, it's a, it's a nine to five day with a full hour off for lunch plus two 15 minute breaks as well. So it's like really a six and a half hour day. Sounds fine. Yeah. yeah. No, it's like a six and a half hour day. And, and I'm jealous. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be contacting the salaried employees union uh, after this podcast ends. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I mean, six, six and a half hour day and, you know, four weeks vacation to start plus six personal days and you know, a ton of holidays and like it's, it's France basically. Are you, are you hiring? Uh, yeah, we are hiring actually. Okay. Um, we've got a couple positions posted right now. Um, I mean, you can look up the, uh, the city of Boston job site. Uh, yeah. but you know, more than anything, we're, we're, we're always looking for people, uh, you know, at all times, because as, as you might imagine, just going through the, the mechanisms of, of government, you know, it can take a while to get things posted. Uh, we have, uh-huh. A few, we have a bunch of positions right now that are waiting to post, uh, you know, once they go through the process. But, uh, yeah, generally I would say, you know, anybody, anybody who's interested should just shoot me an email directly. It's, um, pretty accessible. It's just andrew.terrio at boston.gov and, and figuring out how to spell my last name is really the, the test. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll add it to the website. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you Google Boston chief data officer, you know, it comes up. So if you can't figure that one out, I think you failed the initial screen. But, um, but yeah, I would say, you know, anybody interested, definitely shoot me an email. Uh, and what, what, why is Boston a better place to be a data per, uh, a city data, uh, employee than say, you know, New York or Seattle or Los Angeles or. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there are, there are good opportunities, uh, at all those places. And I know my counterparts in each place and certainly will not, uh, speak poorly of them. But, you know, I think part of what's, what's great about our team is just that, we have a really broad mandate. Uh, we get a lot of discretion in, in the kind of things we get to work on. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that's unique about our team compared to a lot of others is that uh, the size of, of analytics teams across cities really varies because, you know, in some places it's just set up as like a separate shop with maybe five or six people tasked to work in very specific areas. For us, uh, the analytics team actually was created as a combination of a bunch of different groups that all kind of worked in that area. And, you know, the formal creation of the team was really just taking the existing people who did it, pushing them together into a team and then adding on new people with, with additional skills who can really start to leverage 
you know, the combined abilities of, of everybody involved. So right now we have, uh, we have a bit over 20 people working on the team, uh, ranging, you know, everything from people who do like GIS and, and open data to data engineers and data scientists. And we, we run the city's performance management program out of our team, uh, all the mapping, uh, the open data portal, we're right in the midst of doing a, a massive overhaul right now. And, you know, the nice thing about that is we bring together all these different capabilities, but we also, we also work in so many different areas. I mean, we work with, uh, something like 45 or 50 out of the 60 or so departments and agencies throughout the city. And so the variety of projects wow. is insane. And it's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. Especially like with open data that opens the doors to a lot of conversations where, you know, as soon as you start talking data with pretty much every department, you know, you, there's the first step of saying, well, you know, we're looking to develop resources for an open data portal, but that naturally leads into a discussion of, well, you know, how do you use data? How can we help you use data? Mm -hmm. Right now we're at a point where, you know, it's a fortunate place to be that we have more demand for what we do than, than capacity. Uh, and, and it's fortunate because, you know, at the start, I think the first year, year and a half of the program was really about just almost like a proof of concept, you know, showing here's the kind of things we can do getting some buy-in, getting people interested in, in what we could offer. Now we've sort of passed that test and we're at the point where, you know, I'll get a call from, from, you know, the fire commissioner or, or, you know, the head of another department saying, Hey, we've got, you know, these various data things, what can you do to help? And, and what that does, it really makes it easy to say, you know, we only want to work on projects which are really interesting to us and have a real, you know, tangible deliverable benefit. And we get to, you know, we get to res respond to a lot of these requests with, with questions of our own about, you know, how ready these other programs are to, to make use of what we're going to deliver so that we, we don't build things which are just, you know, interesting, but are actually useful. And, you know, we can ask that the, the programs we're building them for have some kind of resources behind it so that once we build something, it's actually going to be put out there in the real world and it's not just going to sit there as, you know, something that was an interesting thing to do and, and, you know, so actually like connecting it back into the actual operations of the city. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, things like, for example, um, over the summer, one big change that, that we made, uh, because of our work is that the, the restaurant inspections that the city does, you know, there's the regularly scheduled one, every, you know, every restaurant is inspected, you know, once, twice or, or three times a year based on, on, you know, what category it falls into. But then uh, there's also spot inspections where, you know, inspectors can drop in uh, for various reasons uh, for licensed establishments and just check to see how they're doing. And so, you know, it used to be that this was something done based on the, the you know, skill and experience and knowledge of the inspectors themselves. And, you know, a lot of times that, that worked well, but it was, I mean, you could see, you could understand it can be inconsistent, you know, in terms of, if you have new inspectors who don't know the establishments or, or don't know what to look for yet, or, you know, if you just can't reasonably expect inspectors to know all the relevant signs that might indicate something's wrong. What we did is uh, we started out with a pilot project and then turned it into a, a real production system where we now use predictive modeling to uh, forecast the likelihood that any given establishment is going to have some kind of critical health code violation and then we are able to target the inspections to go towards the places where, you know, we're most likely to find problems. 
are there are, are there any like um, bias issues around like feature selection there? Sure, and th- this is the thing that comes up all the time. I mean, this came up in my job interview actually. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, so, like an indicator variable for like is a Chinese restaurant? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and this is a you know this is a obviously a huge concern, and I know there's a, been a lot out there about the use of machine learning, and you know particularly in the public sector. Uh, I know ProPublica did that big report on its use in the criminal justice system. Um, in this case, I think you know the the first thought is. Obviously, we don't want to build anything into it, which is, you know, deliberately around characteristics that we don't want to have included in our model. But, but you know, at the same time, I think we also have to think about what we're building the model for. And so, you know, we're talking about inspections, and that kind of puts it in a negative light where the thought process is, okay, you know, say that it's finding Chinese restaurants are, you know, more likely to have violations and be in need of inspection. Well, you know, your first thought is to say, okay, well, that's a model that's generating something which is, you know, punishing Chinese restaurant owners um, more so than others. But I think the flip side you have to think about is, you know, why are we doing these inspections? We're not doing it to be jerks. We're doing it because we're trying to protect the health and safety of the diners who actually frequent those restaurants. And, you know, particularly if you're talking in the case um, of, of, of ethnic restaurants, you know, there's whether it's ethnic restaurants or, or say, I think a better example actually is neighborhoods. You know, the, the demographics of the owners are often quite similar to the patrons. And so maybe what you're finding is, in your example, um, you know, that diners at Chinese restaurants or diners in, you know, restaurants in, in Dorchester, say, or Roxbury, that they're at greater risk. And so from that, you know, from that perspective, what are we doing if we say, yeah, we see that there's a greater risk to these diners, but we're going to ignore that. You know, I think the reason we're doing these inspections is because we're trying to, to, to protect the public. And so maybe as a taxpayer, as a taxpayer, I'd be happy uh, with that. But uh, but I mean, isn't that basically the exact same argument as for kind of like racial profiling and policing? I'm not, I'm not sure I'm following that. Um, meaning here's things that we don't want to take into account, but you know, if our goal is to protect people and maybe these, uh, you know, it, neighborhood by neighborhood, if we pick people who look like they're victims and, uh, you know, it's for, it's for the good of, of the people basically. Well, so here's the thing, here, here's the thing, you know, for one, first and foremost, we're not assessing these restaurants based on these models. What we're doing is we're saying, all right, you know, our inspectors have a discretion about where they're going to go and, and drop in. And, you know, this isn't, it's not like the equivalent of a stop and frisk or something like that, where somebody is going along, you know, uh, about their own business, not involved in anybody else's lives. You know, this is a case where we're talking about licensed food establishments, where this is just part of the deal. They get inspected. That is what they, that is what you sign up for when you, you know, when you start a business serving food to the public, that's, that's part of how that works is there are inspections. And so what we're doing is prioritizing those, you know, based on, on these predictions. But at the end of the day, the only time somebody gets fined is if there's, if the inspector goes and does find that there's a violation, because, you know, the best thing a a restaurant can do to not get inspected is to have a good inspection because, you know, for all the, the talk of, of features that might be really exciting, whether it's, 
you know, something basic like talking about different cuisines or neighborhoods or goes to the level of like bringing in, say, restaurant reviews online, which is, is something that we've incorporated into these models. Um, none of that, none of that even comes close to the predictive power of a restaurant's own inspection history. And, and yeah, every, every model creates, you know, every model has error, just like every human judgment has error. Uh, you know, the alternative here isn't that we just randomly assign our inspections. The alternative is we arbitrarily assign inspections. What, uh, what's, uh, what, what's the most disgusting violation that, that you've seen? Uh, I, I haven't dug into that uh, directly, but there was um, one story I was hearing recently about a, a restaurant where there were a series of, um, of, of food poisoning complaints. And when an inspector went in and, and looked around, what they uncovered was that there was this giant slime mold growing in the ice machine. Yes. And... Right. Yeah, but that's the kind of thing we're trying to, you know, we're trying to stop that. Essentially, so what slime, slime mold can grow in freezing temperatures. So, 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 um, so I went to college in Houston, um, and in Houston there was this uh, local news guy called uh, Marvin Zindler, and he, I think that was his name. Maybe I got it wrong, but anyway, he was like a real local institution. But one of his big shticks was on the nightly news. He would find like the the restaurants that failed their uh, inspections and like read out what they failed them for. And his favorite one was slime in the ice machine. And I, I believe that was even what the segment was called. They'd be like, now it's time for slime in the ice machine. And then they'd like introduce him and they had like a graphic. And then he'd like, he'd get very excited when a restaurant had failed their inspection on account of slime in the ice machine. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a thing, you, you know, you imagine we're talking about sort of dark, damp places with various temperatures. I mean, cause you also have some kind of compressor that generates heat. And so, oh, okay. So there's lots of different places for it, for it to grow. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't uh, look, I'm not a, a epidemiologist. I don't know exactly how the, you know, how that process works, but I, wish I just you were. can't, well, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm just a data scientist. I don't know what to tell you. Um, oh, here, I, I, mean, here I, I found it. Uh, Zendler was famed in Houston for a self-described rat and roach report where he read <laughs> details from the food inspection program. These reports soon became famous for Zindler's enthusiastic reports of slime in the ice machine, which quickly became a catchphrase of his. I suddenly wonder if this is like an urban legend. Or no, no. I, oh, he no, was no, finding I, this? Like, yeah, like I, I remember watching this on TV when I was in college. And, oh. and now that you, you've mentioned it, I have heard, I have heard of that, that, that happening somewhere else, but I, I, never, I never thought it was a, a widespread problem. Well, I mean, if you if you put uh, slime mold into Google and then type, I'm not doing that. It will fill in the rest <laughs> with ice machine. Nice. So, <laughs> huh. yeah, evidently, like it's a it's a thing. Um, but yeah, so that's the kind of thing that that comes up. But but to get back to your point, though, like we're what we're trying to do here is is spot problems uh, early because you know if we just wait around to like the annual inspections you know, when we know that there's probably an issue there, that's sort of a, a dereliction of duty, you know, and, and the model is going to be wrong sometimes. Absolutely. That's why we have a process in place where, you know, we have human, we, it's a human in the loop process. If you're thinking about it from a, a systems standpoint where, mm -hmm. you know, the human in the loop is the inspector who actually goes in and, and if that inspector doesn't find anything, um, what's going to happen is that 
that restaurant isn't going to show up on the, the high priority list anytime soon because more than any of those other features, what, what matters the most is really an, a restaurant's own history. You know, most of what we're prioritizing, I think, ends up being the restaurants that have failed in the past and we haven't gotten around to going back and checking whether they're doing any better now. You know, so so uh, changing topics, if yeah. one wants to uh, build predictive models to find ice machine slime, uh, should one get a Ph.D.? Oh, oh, man. Yeah. So, so I, I don't know. Maybe you did hear me uh, yelling at my, uh, at, at my phone when you were doing the last episode. No. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's something that often happens with PhDs, I guess, but, uh, yeah, it's not the most efficient way, certainly, uh, especially, you know, PhD in political science. I mean, I find myself, uh, you know, describing myself as not that kind of doctor quite often. Um, right. Do you put uh, comma PhD after your email signature? And uh, no, not anymore. It seems okay. like I so I did actually though in my last job. I think here maybe you know moving to local government um, in a you know tough working class city. You know, Ooh, I think fancy uh, fancy degree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I, I get enough crap already because I don't have a strong accent um, that you know I didn't want to come off as as too full of myself. I figure I can do that without, you know, sure. My no, it, it comes through. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, and to be fair, you know, my, my Twitter handle is Terrio PhD. So. That's right. Yeah. So it's always there. Well, it's yeah. interesting. You, you know, a lot of people in, in data science have, have come to it with or without a PhD. And a lot of times the, the degree they get is not a data science degree. And, and, uh, you know, like, so, you know, on our team, we have physics and math people, but, and now they're doing, you know, general consulting for, for all sorts of industries. Well, but yours, yours is actually in the same field that you're in now, right? Well, back in my day, there weren't data science PhDs. Right, right. Because I'm, look, I'm, I'm on what might be described as the wrong side of 35. Uh, so, you know. So are we all. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but no, so, so in my case, what was odd, odd enough was not so much this job, but my last job. Um, working at running the data science program at the DNC, you know, that was basically the job I wanted when I went into grad school, except it, cool. it, it didn't exist yet. Because yep. uh, basically where it all started was, was back in 2004. Uh, I moved out to Ohio to work on the presidential campaign uh, for a couple months and, you know, was wandering around uh, signing people up to vote and, and all that. And really what I figured out at the end of it was that you know, I like politics, but I never wanted to carry a clipboard again in my damn life. And so mm-hmm. were you, was your thesis quantitative in, in nature oh yeah. too? Oh yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, I, I went to, so I was in a poli sci program, but at NYU, the poli sci program is what I think a lot of places might be thought of as like an econ or stats program with a poli sci focus. Oh, neat. Yep. I went you know, to, uh, I actually was in the social science program at Caltech, which is very similar. Yeah. Sky. Yeah. I mean, I actually went after my postdoc, um, my, my first job after that was, uh, a startup analytics firm that was basically, uh, run by two guys out of Caltech in the political science department, or I guess, no, it's social science over there. Yeah. So maybe it was one of your professors. Uh, but, probably it was actually if it was professors. Yeah. Mike Alvarez. I know Mike Alvarez. Yeah. So that was his firm that I was working okay. for. Yeah. So I, uh, I was their first hire when they started the firm. So, yep, uh, yep. I, uh, I just uh, saw him 
uh, last year, I went back to Caltech for like a career fair. Uh, hmm. Not a career fair, but it was like a so what you can do with a degree in social science kind of event. So oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, he and one of his grad students they were consulting on the Obama campaign back in 2012 and ended up getting a a, a gig doing targeting for the California Labor Federation uh, on all the the ballot initiatives in California in 2012. Hmm. And uh, there was one really big one which. Basically, if it had passed, would have made it uh, impossible for for unions to spend uh, to spend money on politics in California. So basically, they had a good incentive to spend whatever it took to make sure it didn't pass, because otherwise that money would be worthless. So uh, you know, basically, those two they decided to start a firm when they got this this contract, and I was the first person they hired. I was a well, what I describe as a job market leftover from the academic side. I was uh, living in Nashville at the time, uh, in the second half of a postdoc at Vanderbilt, and took a stab at the academic job market in the fall. And, you know, as often happens, uh, it didn't work out my first time, and I decided not to subject myself to that again. So mm-hmm. ended up packing up in the, in the spring and heading out, to, heading out to California. And so how, how did you choose the DNC over the RNC? Was it like a, a pay <laughs> thing or? <sighs> the benefits... Oh God! Better, better, better vacation policy. Uh, I, I don't think I. No, I did. I think I took a vacation there once. Um, yeah. No, it's 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 not a place you go for quality of life purposes. Put it that way. Um, you know, it's like maybe the one thing uh, where even more than grad school, the advice is probably don't do it if you have anything else you think you could do instead. So you, you hear all these romantic stories about what it was like to be a data person on, say, the Obama campaign. So how is that different from being a data person at the at the DNC itself? Oh, man. Are you, are you asking me to air all the dirty laundry? Uh, oh, no. no. I mean, you, we no, won't object but, if you do, but... Well, I mean, you know, I think that the thing to, to differentiate is that, um, you know, my relationship with uh, the presidential campaign during the time I was there... Um, and, and most of the time I was there, it was, well, I guess all the time I was there technically, because I left just right around the time, like the same week as the last primary um, this year. And my thought process all along as planning out for that was that the presidential campaign would handle its election and that my team would handle all the others. You know, I think the, oh, okay. the reason you get onto a presidential campaign is, I mean, there are lots of reasons people do that, but, but it's very much a, you know, team environment where everybody is working for the same specific goal and it's very dramatic and all consuming. And, and I think working at the DNC is it's different because rather than like one big win or loss, it's devoting your, your couple years of your life to, you know, instead you're sort of, you're doing it at scale. It's like production, uh, political work. Well, you have clients everywhere too, right? Like lots of all the campaigns use you as a service. Oh yeah. Well, I mean the big, the biggest thing that my team did, uh, the data science team there was that we built out, uh, all the micro targeting models that got loaded into the voter contact systems that, uh, that were available to, to pretty much every democratic campaign in the country. Uh, we, so, yeah, so how do you how do you decide who you're gonna who you're gonna help and focus on? Is it, is it like a chargeback system or no? No, I mean this. So the DNC is just essentially a, a 
you know, an association of all the state parties together. And so everything filters back down through the state parties. So and and is that done based on like the size of the parties or is it more of an electoral college kind of thing where like each state gets a couple of votes? Uh, inner workings of the DNC are, are not my uh, my area of expertise, mostly because I knew I had no control over them. And, you know, all, any argument about those over the past year or two was was not a fun one to be in. You know, uh, Musselman also has worked on a presidential campaign. Is that right? So I've heard. I, I did. I worked on the Sanders campaign for two days. And, yeah. Uh, they it was really, days, well, I would, what I would, I would characterize it as I, I was very heavily involved in the, in the campaign. Yeah. It was two days. I had, <laughs> I, I was invited by somebody on the campaign to, to help out, assess some, some models they'd had built. And I got a VPN access. I got a login to a Vertica cluster. I started looking at some data, pulling some data down and then, and it, I, I happened to be out sick uh, from work, so I was just you know messing around, playing playing with what I and I was it was really fun. Like I must say, like as as far as as far as data sets that that are interesting and compelling, I, I I'd say it ranks up there. Uh, but then a couple of days later, my I got a text from my dad who said uh, you might want to look at the news, and the the person who invited me had been fired for for mis uh, for mis uh, misuse of data. Seemed like a real, real dumb thing to do. Yeah, the dude and made so, really good homemade ice cream, though. <laughs> no, one yeah, I mean, he brought it into the office one day. I, 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 go ahead. Oh yeah, no, they were visiting the the DNC um, to talk about data stuff before all this stuff went down, and and yeah, he had brought in like a few different flavors of homemade ice cream. What is it with Vermont and ice cream? It's cold. There are yeah, cows. Must, there must aren't be, yeah. a hell of a lot of better things to do. <laughs> and that look, I mean, that's that's my guess. Yeah, what, but what I was mean, the, <laughs> what was the misuse of data? I vaguely remember that news story, and now I've forgotten it because so many so, things have happened since then. Yeah. So, so to sum it up, and uh, in the the most general way possible, because I do not want to restart this whole uh, cluster, but basically. Uh, what happened was that the voter contact platform that the DNC makes available to to all Democratic campaigns, um, they had the the company that runs it had done a software update and Uh-oh. one bug in yeah. this update. <laughs> Those never go well. No. Yeah, well, <laughs> the the bug in the update was that uh, for primary campaigns there was a firewall between the data uh, from one campaign and another. Oh right, so you, for people from one campaign could look at the data from the other campaign because yeah. the software update forgot yeah. to enforce that. Somebody right. schmodded it wrong. Yeah. And so, so what happens is, you know, this, uh, the, all the targeting scores for the Clinton campaign were visible to the Sanders people and vice versa. And, and the targeting scores, you know, they're just not just, I mean, first crack, you might think, okay, it's just a modeled prediction. Well, you know, who knows? That's money. Good, That's but, money. Well, part of the part of the issue is that you know those those modeling scores they update them as they go out and do actual voter contacts. So if you see somebody who's like, you know, on a zero to one hundred scale, a hundred or a zero, that's probably because they told you that. Uh, so, well, you know, as 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 Andrew mentioned, uh, they had some concerns about their their own scores on the uh, on the Sanders campaign, and so you know. 
I, I think they didn't have some great confidence in their own, and so they were very interested in the Clinton campaigns. And so, and, and, it, and it turns out that no one should have been confident in those either, right? <laughs> oh yeah, did you did you quit after your guy didn't win? Is that were you rage quitting? What was what was that about? Oh, me? <laughs> yeah, I. I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. dark days, dark days. But um, <laughs> but yeah. So, so the punchline, all that though, is that what happened was essentially uh, a few people on the Sanders campaign. Uh, made copies of the the Clinton scores and moved them over to their own account. And then when the DNC saw that, um, you know, it locked down access to the system until it could get resolved. And uh, then that became a huge political thing. And like the Sanders campaign accused the DNC of of trying to sabotage them. And it just got in this huge fight. And luckily, I had chosen the day this all blew up to say, screw it, I'm going on vacation and (laughs) leave town uh, a few days early for, um, you know, for the holidays, because it was right before Christmas, we just had the anniversary. And so I was actually, uh, as all this was going down, um, I knew before it went public, uh, you know, it took like a day, it took like a day and a half, two days to go public. And I had, I had known it was coming. I didn't quite know what it was going to turn into, but I remember I was hanging out in, um, in DCA at the airport waiting for a flight to Vegas. Uh, as I actually, I think, you know, as, as Musselman was texting me, uh, when, (laughs) when all this happens. Yeah. Well, I was, I mean, like I was seeing, you know, usernames pop up in the news and I, I just, I, I Googled my, no, I I was just like, I started Googling my vertical username and I didn't see it. And I was just like, okay, it's definitely, you know, I, that's that's good. Well, I, you know, anyway, the, the moral of the story is that a bad software update brought an end to Musselman's political career after two days. Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was a very promising one at that. Well, didn't I introduce you to the Clinton people, or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. Okay, you know, well, I, I, and I talked to them, but you know, I just I thought about it, and I was you know I was thinking like I would have to move the whole family to Boston to, to Brooklyn, and and you know I I I could have taken a leave of absence, but. I also, you know, I wasn't as I wasn't as uh, invested in in her as a candidate. No, Musselman, I mean, Musselman is not woke enough to work for the Clinton campaign. <laughs> also, they wanted a like a four hour, uh, you know, take home test, and I just oh that god, was, I know I know that test. I, I never took yeah. it, but, but yeah, yeah. No, when they uh, so so, it seems weird to a lot of people why I would leave when I did, um, but basically, it's not anymore. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think. To some degree, uh, really what it comes down to is that um, in a presidential year, once the primary is over, the DNC gets taken over by the campaign. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't get to be uh, uh, my my own boss anymore. Mm-hmm. Basically, we'd be taking orders from Brooklyn. And suffice it to say that my working relationship with Brooklyn was not uh, spectacular. Uh, you know, I think there were just some fundamental disagreements about the way things should be done that didn't ever get resolved. And so I didn't, did not anticipate a great working relationship after the primary. So mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't planning on leaving, but when the opportunity up in Boston uh, became available, you know, I, I, I realized I couldn't say no when I was looking at a situation where, you know, basically the way I approached it was I would hope they would have the decency to fire me rather than just make my life miserable. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but then, you know, I think the other part is, is I knew for, for two years before that, that the primary campaign was going to come to an end and the DNC wouldn't get to do everything it wanted after that. So I had built out everything my team worked on with the idea being that we need to, we need to more or less finish our work by June. You know, mm-hmm. we, we would do updates, but like we wouldn't be releasing major new things. So Is there like a self-destruct in there somewhere. No, no there was no self-destruct. Um, Brooklyn was able to destroy my team for me. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, they, they basically took half the team up to Brooklyn and left the other half in place just to essentially, you know, mine the fort and run reboot, model reboot machines. Yeah. 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 And it was sad because we built a great program at the DNC and, and, you know, sadly, it's kind of no more because most of the team is has scattered to the winds, um, and it was not. I've a, actually but, never been to Brooklyn, but based on like Twitter and TV, I, I it feels like the worst place on earth. Oh, I, I love Brooklyn. I, I lived there five, five and a half years. Um, yeah, no. When I say Brooklyn these days, though, usually what I mean is the the Clinton campaign. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, did you have one of those beards when you lived there? I never. You know, I'm. I'm not a beard person. I'm just way too, uh, you know, I, I've tried a few times um, and I can grow it, but like there's a certain point where I just cannot deal with the itching anymore. I was, you, so I, you had a beard I was, in one of, those, one of those Jason Bourne movies, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, my abs were wonderful too. <laughs> so they used so, to be. So I was never a beard person either, but then about a year ago, I hated my job so much that I like couldn't make myself shave in the morning. And so I just went for like six weeks without shaving because I was so like miserable and angry all the time. And the, at, at the end of it, I just had this huge beard. And then it was like so huge that I was like, you know, I can't really get rid of that. And my, my wife wouldn't let me either. Yeah, my, my, mine, it just, I just got too itchy. I, I, I've gone, that's about as long as I've gone. But uh, so, so, so we've kind of teased around this issue, but um. Uh, what, what does the Trump election mean for city data people? I mean, right now, I think there's, you know, there are definitely a lot of us who are kind of looking around and saying, okay, what can we do? Because I think one of the, the, uh, encouraging and terrifying things about it is realizing that, you know, there are a lot of, of, of good things or, you know, at least things that people like me would think are good that, uh, we're no longer going to be able to rely on coming from the federal government. And so I think the role of, of cities and states is going to be a lot bigger. So, you know, six months ago when I came on board, the, uh, I mean, we have a, a office of immigrant advancement here in the city, uh, which is, you know, mostly thinking, I, I think the focus has been about, um, you know, helping people just sort of get established in the community and, and, connected to the services they need and all that, you know, but nowadays we're thinking about things in terms of like, uh, you know, having discussions about whether we have any data about people's immigration status that we should not be retaining Hmm. because it may, you know, come back to haunt some people. Um, so that's a very weird thing, but you know, there's also areas like thinking about, um, you know, connecting people with like healthcare options, uh, where, you know, especially like here in Massachusetts, we, we had effectively Obamacare uh, back when they called it Romney care. You know, mm-hmm. this has been a thing for us for a while. And so one of the things that's, that, that's pretty clear is, okay, you know, the federal government isn't driving the ship anymore, but there's still programs out there for people. And so now there's a bigger role to figure out how we connect people to the options available. And, and there are a lot of other areas um, where, 
you know, I think there's going to be a bigger role for, for state and local governments to, to try to help out where previously, you know, there might've been a bigger role from the federal side. Um, are you, are you and other city data people able to take sort of templates from what, um, data.gov and, and that the OSTP have built and, and well, use those, build things out? Yeah. So, so, I mean, some of the things that are coming from there, um, for example, we're involved in two, uh, two initiatives from the, the OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. One is the, the uh, data-driven justice initiative. The other is the police data initiative. Um, mm-hmm. those are, one of them is, is basically about how do we take people with, with mental health and substance abuse problems and get them away from the criminal justice system, get them into you know, treatment-based approaches. Uh, and the other is about transparency as it comes to, uh, to policing. You know, we're involved mm-hmm. in both of those, and those are, are transitioning over to other organizations. Um, one is going to the, I believe it's the National Association of Counties. The other is going to the Police Foundation. And I can't remember which one is going where uh, off the top of my head. But, uh, you know, those, some of those programs are going to live on in other organizations. Uh, there are other things that, you know, our data.gov is actually a great example of this, where um, one of the things that the, the network of chief data officers that I'm a part of is working on is, is um, data standards, for, and particularly for open data, where we may be able to try to reconcile data across cities cool. by producing it in a consistent way. You know, that's the kind of thing where data.gov, if we had another, you know, four or eight years of a science-focused administration, we might get there with that being the driving force. Given that that's unlikely to be uh, an option, you know, now cities are figuring that out for themselves and we're working together to, to try to come up with some standards. So Does that, that network of uh, city data officers have like a clever name? Uh, it's not terribly clever. It's a civic analytics network. I like it. It's catchy. Yeah, it's it's can can yeah. Do you do you guys have a do you have a source repo and and test data and stuff like that? No, no not at this point. I mean, maybe uh, I'm not on that working group. I'm. I actually, this is a a new thing that's spun out of um, the meetings. So we do two in person meetings a year and then monthly calls. And uh, out of the last meeting, which happened in October, there were a series of of working groups that were created. Um, there's one on, on data standards, and uh, then there's another one that I'm, in, I'm actually leading the tech infrastructure group. Does a city have to be like a certain size to qualify? Like, do you uh, ever get people who want to apply and you're like, yeah, that's more of a town? There is some, there is some degree of that. I, I forget what the, uh, the strict guideline is. Uh, we just actually went over bylaws and so forth recently. I think there's a, there's a funding-based mandate because this is a, a grant-funded organization. So I think there may be something in there specifying what, you know, what a city is, but for the most part, you know, financial aid for, for like broke cities like Detroit, uh, Detroit. I don't think no, Detroit isn't involved. I don't think I, I, you know, in part, not, not if there's a funding mandate, right? Well, you know, we don't have, we, we don't have a funding mandate on our end. I think whether or not you have a analytics program to begin with is a pretty good indicator of where you stand there though. Yep. So, you know, and it's it's all the cities you would think of. Uh, you know, in addition to Boston, you have no idea what I would think of. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So you're saying it's on the coast and it's liberal cities? Is that when? <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, we've got actually some of the the most prominent uh, or participants in this group are 
uh, my counterparts in Louisville and St. Louis and New Orleans, uh, oh, cool. Denver, uh, actually Allegheny County in, in Pennsylvania where Pittsburgh is. There have hmm. been big participants in this. As so well. co- counties are allowed too. Then yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we kind of broadly <laughs> bent the rules it. for them. Well, and that like actually, my counterpart in San Francisco uh, is, I believe, works at the county level. It's it's Got just it. a function of you know who does what where in different places. Oh, okay, so like if King County had a had had a, a head start on the city of Seattle, then that yeah. might be the participant. Got it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, across the country, there's huge variation in which services take place at the local level and which place, which are done at the county level. Yeah, and so you know, it's basically it's it has a. a a city focus where the specific administration lies, you know, we're less concerned about that. Would um, Wyoming as a state be, be uh, eligible? I don't believe so. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's meant for municipalities. I was just joking about how many yeah. people are there. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, are you involved in like the data science scene in Boston more broadly? I'm starting to, um, you know, it's what's that scene like? It's, it's surprisingly good. Uh, you know, like there's a group that I, I went to for the first time either late last month or early this month, um, called, called the, the Boston machine intelligence group and saw some, I, maybe, I don't know. I was their holiday party I went to actually. Um, but they did, they did a series of presentations where, you know, there were, there, there were things about, for example, um, recognizing, uh, like taking video images and parsing out things like, like brands and, you know, people and identifying objects and, you know, a lot of neural network stuff that I've never really, that's not my strong point. I've, you know, I kind of hit the like gradient boosting trees and random forests and, you know, support vector machines. And that's always been enough for, you know, anything I've needed to do. So never quite went down the, the rabbit hole of, of, deep learning and neural networks. But like, there's a lot of interesting stuff about that. And, and, you know, just thinking about different applications, there's a surprisingly, are they plugged into this? Are they plugged into schools like MIT? And well, yeah, that's obviously a big driver of things around Mm here. Um, I mean, there's a huge, huge research community. You know, I don't know, like, like that's, that's a group that I've been to once and talked with a handful of people, but, um, you know, there are more different things going on in that realm around here than I could keep track of. Because no, I actually got invited to speak at, uh, there's a, this open data science conference that, uh, uh ODSC East, ODSC East is, yeah. I, I spoke at, I spoke at their Santa Clara one a few months ago and they, they invited me to speak at their Boston one next yeah, year. Yeah. So I'm actually funny enough, uh, Seamus McGovern, the head of ODSC, he's, I've got a meeting with him tomorrow. Um, we're actually looking at seeing, so I mentioned earlier that we are overhauling our open data portal right now. And one of the big new things we want to do with it is to make it an environment where it's not just about like, here's the place to go to download a data set, but you know, here is a more collaborative environment where we can provide some tools on top of it so that people can interact with the data directly in there, but also provide a way to showcase some of the things that people produce. Because really what we want to do is not just share a bunch of data and, you know, call it a day. We want to encourage Mm -hmm. people to actually use it. So one of the things we're doing around this rollout is, uh, wanting to have several events where we were able to, you know, let people present the things that they're doing. And so we've been talking about putting on a, a an event for, I think it's the, this, the day after the 
ODSC East conference. Uh, I think that runs Wednesday through Friday. And we were looking at doing something that Saturday, which is a Boston-focused thing for, for people who've built things out on our, our system and, and, and maybe have a more general, too, like a, a conference about the use of civic data. But in particular, we want to highlight the new portal, which is you know, not just a new platform, but we're also going through all the data that, that lives in there and you know, developing new data sources, cleaning up the existing ones, really curating it to make it something that uh, that's actually useful. It's not just a dump of you know tables from our so database. You, so you could you could bring all the city data together in one query. Well, like I mean, from from disparate. I mean, that'd be really neat, wouldn't it? Yeah. So one of the one of the tools we're building on top of it actually is a join feature, so that you know if we've got say 150 data sets on there, um, and there are you know let's take an example, um, you know geocoded. There's geocoded data uh, about say, properties, where you want to pull up data from our 911 system and our 311 system and assessing and, you know, police reports and all different things around a given address. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, one context, we've, been, we've uh, built out an application or we're, we're working on building a separate application around this was looking up um, things you might want to know as a renter. You know, if you're going to check out a building, you might want to move mm-hmm. into well, the idea is uh, in this new portal as we're building it is that you know we want you to be able to look up uh, across different data sets that have common keys, so that you can do things by by address or by neighborhood or mm-hmm. you know any any other number of characteristics that how many muggings in this in this block? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and you know my goal for this, and I don't know if we're going to be able to get all the way there in this first iteration, but I'm working with. Uh, some outside partners with the idea being uh, try to get them to help us build tools for this where, you know, say you want to take that number of, of, of muggings on a, a given block thing and compare it to changes in housing values over time, mm-hmm. you know, and, and get a, get a sense of how different kinds of, uh, you know, crime patterns might affect property values mm-hmm. or, or right. conversely, so See, like how a change in property values might then predict a change in, you know, the things that happen in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. When my house becomes that, less valuable, I need to go out and mug people to make up for the, <laughs> the difference in my wealth. That's or causality maybe, right there. You know, or maybe if your rent goes up, you get a little more desperate uh, to, to make ends meet. Who knows? Yep. Is it, is it also in the plan to be able to join up Boston and New York and, and all the other cities together in one query? Well, yeah. That would so be that, nice. That that would be awesome. Um, I mean, we're not going to do that on our portal, but it kind of gets back to to the thing I mentioned a minute ago about data.gov and coming up with open standards that we can use to to bridge communities. And yeah. you know, in some places, that's not going to work because there are some there are some things where the processes behind data just aren't comparable. But for 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 things that are more or less objective, um, you know, it's a standard we'd like to get to. Put it that way. Yeah, you define define a facade that that everybody writes to, and then. Yeah. Towns and, and cities so, can map so, their, their so, fields so to that. From my perspective, this is like the kind of uh, uh, the wishful thinkingness of, of the people who've never, or the person who's never worked in the private sector. Because the reality on the ground is more like, um, here I have the logs from front end server one and the logs from front end server two, and I'd like to join across them, and that's impossible. Well, I, I, I would, I don't even know how to start with that. 
Um, I I, I, I'm just saying I've worked in enough places where that's the case that um, yeah. the, the dream of like, let's join Boston data and New York data seems like, uh, okay. But, a lot, but a, lot of, a lot of the study of data is, is much more tabular. It's not like, there's not a lot of logs going on. Well, right? I, I'm just interested how your, your assessment of me not having worked in the private sector, which isn't actually true, but that, that somehow that translates to I've never joined across data sets because uh, political data is like one of the most extreme examples of that because your whole thing when you're establishing you know the data that goes into a model is let's take all the different kinds of things we can find and put them into one data set so you'll take you'll start out with a voter file you know which are like the basic registration records which might give name address party registration uh past turnout you know maybe a couple other things like it's a you know it's a half page form you fill out that's your basic voter file but then we append onto that, you know, things things from say uh, consumer data sources, or the census, or things from campaign contact histories, or donation histories, or you know, if you've signed up for an email list for us or for some other campaign five years ago or ten years ago, or all these different things get brought to bear, and there's a huge part of that challenge, which is just figuring out how to make you know the different rows line up. Uh, across those data sets. So yeah, there's some messiness to it. Like that, I, absolutely. That's always going to be a part of it, but like, that's, that's something that happens and it's not just the private sector. In fact, I feel like server logs would be almost the simplest version of that. I mean, it's machine data, you know, well, people are messy. <laughs> <laughs> Machines are messy too. I mean, you know, like I, I, I'm not, I'm not arguing one way or the other, but I've, we had, you know, we, we've seen places where the web server logs uh, have one form of user ID and then the app logs have another form of the user ID. And sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. So collating that stuff can be oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, well let, let's just agree that, uh, that it's hard for everybody and we all suck at it. <laughs> uh, I consider it a challenge and, you know, it helps. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, and it helps when you you can tell yourself you're saving the world in the process. All right. Well, uh, we're we're kind of pushing up on the uh, the hour mark, so I think it's probably a good time to kind of wrap up. But is there uh, anything you feel like you need to get off your chest about uh, about Boston or data or us or us yeah. us <sighs> about you? Huh. I, I'm just I'm really sad that nobody has has made any sort of uh, how do you like dem apples joke. You just did. Yeah. No, I, but that wasn't a joke. That was just an expression of sadness. I don't well, even I did. I, wait, I don't even know what I that made, means. I made a joke. I, I said, did you go to a school in Boston, which is code for going to Harvard or... Oh, oh. See. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not one of those. But what, what is, how do you like them? I mean, I've heard of that expression, but I don't know what the joke would be. Oh, you... Oh, it's from the movie where uh, where Andrew uh, Terrio uh, started as a janitor at uh, at Harvard and then uh, worked his way up so to. I actually was a janitor when that came out. Awesome. <laughs> I was I was a jan- but I was a janitor in a hospital, so I was I actually had it worse. Oh, nice. So I've I've actually never seen that movie. I I won't watch movies about math. They make me angry, so I just don't watch them. Be- beautiful mind. I, I I won't watch movies about math. They make me angry. I don't watch them. All right. Well, it's not exactly so, a movie about math. Math is just a. It's math is the side. The math, math is the sort of the substrate. Yeah. yeah it, but if, really if they're a, like do, if they're doing math and it's wrong, it will make me angry, and, and I'll have to walk out. So I. I just well, they, he does math like on a window, you know, like with a marker on a window. It's really it's really compelling. 
it's really a, yeah. a movie where math is just a vehicle to get to that whole like male overachieving angst yeah. plot line, which is I, I've know. been there. But it, when I was when I was sixteen, when that came out, like that was way more appealing to me. I think now it's you know I watch it and I, I kind of it's it's more for sentimental value, but uh, you know there's still there are still moments. All right. Well, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and uh, being on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's thanks. been real fun. Yeah. We'll do it again sometime. Hopefully, sure. yeah, hopefully we'll have something uh, uh, less depressing to talk about than this, uh, this past election. <laughs> we barely even talked about the election. Yeah, I know, but it's just, you know, it's still a little raw. That's all. It's, it's, is that the lens through which you see everything now? I know. Yeah. At, at some point, at, at some point I'll stop gloating. Oh, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, speaking of which, when is your uh, your nomination going to be announced, Joel? Um, you know, I, I'm still trying to work the the I'm still trying to work my back channels, but uh, really, I mean, did, no, pro- did, no progress yet. You know, did uh, Jonathan put in a good word for you with DJ? Uh, I don't think he has much say in. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> matter. Uh, th- th- those aren't the channels I'm working. All uh, right. Well, but you know, uh, if there's anything, I haven't heard it. Yeah. Uh, if I hear anything, I'll let you know. So far, I haven't heard anything. I assume the only thing I could do would be to say, oh, my God, that would be a terrible, awful, horrible thing, and nobody should ever do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. We, we, we're, we could I, basically I just... Yeah, we could, troll, we could troll your way into this, right? Uh, I've trolled my way into a lot of things in life. <laughs> well, well then, you know, this should, this should be easy. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, <laughs> Have a good weekend. Talk to you next time. Later, guys. Later. Joel again. That's it. Thanks. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, as a reminder, adversariallearning.com, adversarial underscore L on Twitter. And uh, if you want to email us, adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. Um, and now uh, here's my Vaporwave theme again.